Friends, who likes to make plans? Do you like to make plans? I like to make plans, but I'm not real good at them. Um, my wife is the planner, the calendar of our home. I know some people, I'm not one of them, who love spreadsheets, filling out applications, calendaring. And friends, making plans is a good thing. Uh, knowing what you need to do next is actually very important in how to obey God and, and follow him. And we might even call it leading an organized life. What does it look like to lead an organized, planned life? So we make meal schedules, we have game schedules, we have church schedules, and we all throw them on the same calendar and hope that it all makes sense. But if we truly desire to be Christ-like, we should know how God leads his people. So how does he do that? Well, in their book, Guard Us, Guide Us, J.I. Packer and Carolyn Nystrom, they make this point when talking about God's leading. He says, God leads in paths of righteousness, nowhere else. God's guidance never violates the principles of uprightness and, and integrity, nor will he ever prompt us to irresponsible decisions and actions. He guides us rather to obey his word and to choose between options by the exercise of the Christ-like, God-honoring, far-seeing wisdom that is modeled for us in the Bible, the wisdom that always aims at what will please God best. Friends, it's so easy to become, to become immobilized by what we don't know. But as we live, we must know that God cares. We must know that God cares for our every need, when we need it. Everything that you have that you need, God has provided. And he will cause his beloved, his church, to flourish. Turn your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter, thir uh, chapter 4, verse 13. And if you're, in, uh, you're using one of the, uh, the pew Bibles... Uh, that is going to be found on page 587. And if you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to take that Bible with you. Just consider that a gift from our church to you. James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. We're going to read the, the entire passage and then we'll dive in. Verse 1. Come now, you who say tomorrow... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now if you listen to the other sermons in, this, in the James series, um, you might remember that we've, 
we've covered a lot of ground. We've, we've gone from very, the very beginning, verse 1 all the way through now. And we've dealt with topics ranging from being steadfast in trials to faith to how deeds and faith work hand in hand to the product of the heart that spews forth in our speech to wisdom on how to put away selfish ambition and jealousy to chapter 4 where James speaks about the quarrels that are breaking out in the church and how the passions that are, at, that are at war within us is the cause of the problems that we face in our church, in the churches, when it comes to division. And the sharp rebuke in verses 6 through 10 largely shape and place the tracks for where James is going from here. And he's showing us that the heat, the heat of the passions of our flesh begin to cool when we understand and grapple with the reality that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And friends, it's that very intentional offering of grace extended from God that should cause us to submit our hearts and wills before him. It is the chill of grace that can begin to cool the fire of our passions. And James makes it very clear, if we do not humble our hearts before God, there is no middle ground. God is either opposed to us or extends his mercy to us, one or the other. So the rebuke, if you were to go back and look at verse 6 through 10, it seeks to curb the bit of our passions and scrape the plaque off the teeth of our self-righteousness and says, gaze at God. Gaze at his holiness because he either opposes you or he gives grace to you. And that resounding humility, that resounding humility driving truth is what leads James to finish in verse 10 by saying, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And he continues this, this humility invoking dialogue when he goes to verse 12, when he says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And if, if you were to look forward even to chapter 5, James continues this, this similar rebuke, but to the rich and draws their attention to the limited nature and finiteness of their life and their money and follows that with a harsh, harsh admonishing. And something that is very clear, friends, from the very beginning, from the previous passage and the following passage, is that James is extremely concerned about their pride and arrogance, which is, which is why this tactic of humility, summoning corrections are everywhere in all of chapter 4. And sandwiched between those two texts in, in early chapter 4 and in chapter 5 is our text. So if the previous passage is about the beginning stages of humility, 
the beginning stages of humility, and what it looks like to downwardly mourn over our sins and to have our laughter turn to mourning and our joy to gloom. Friends, verses 13 through 17 is about the positive nature of cultivating, nurturing, and sustaining a posture and lifestyle of humility. And with that said, there are four main points in this sermon. The first point is this, the false confidence of the arrogant. The false confidence of the arrogant. That'll be in verse 13, coupled with verse 16. Second point is the brevity of life. The brevity of life. That's in verse 14. The third point is providence-shaped humility. Providence-shaped humility. That is in verse 15. And then point four is the poison of presumption. The poison of presumption. And that's in verse 17. So beloved, as as we read this text... And as you hear the sermon today, please know this fundamental truth. In our arrogance, we presume upon God's grace by failing to consider the providence of God in all of our dealings and decisions. And because of the evil of this arrogance, we cannot humbly obey God's commands. So point one, the false confidence of the arrogant. Verse 13 through 16 reads again this way. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now friends, in verse 13, we see this passage start to unfold by James drawing attention to this statement in verse 13. This statement that we just read, today or tomorrow we'll go and we'll do and we'll sell and we'll trade and we'll make a profit. Now, friends, realistically, he's probably heard this statement before, something like it. There are merchants, there were merchants at that time who would seek to make, uh, do well in business. And so the background of this statement is that he's speaking primarily to people who do business, who are merchants, who go and set up shop uh, in in a market. And they'd go to these, these towns, they'd set up shop in the market, and they would seek to make some money. There's nothing really necessarily wrong with that. The statement is made, but he doesn't readdress what he says in verse 13 until he gets to verse 16, where James then adds, in reference to the statement in verse 13, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, friends, this can honestly honestly be a little baffling. As As we read this verse 13, like I said, there's nothing really wrong with seeking to make money, provide for your family, Nothing wrong with that. I mean, we all make plans, right? Like I said, Casey makes a calendar in our home. I'm, I'm really bad at it. It's just really true. 
But we see the summary James makes. We see this summary that James makes about statement in verse, in, uh, the statement in verse 16. And we see that he is condemning it. So is he condemning all kinds of planning or all planning? And friends, we need to be clear. James is not rebuking these merchants for their, for their plans. He's not rebuking them even for the desire to make a profit. Remember, Joseph was commended for storing up food in the cities to prepare for the famine. Remember that in Genesis chapter 41, verse 35. He was commended. In fact, he blessed the land as a result of God's providence. But we have to remember this must be done with caution. This storing up of riches of any kind should not rise from distrust. He rebukes them for a worldly self-confidence that they display while they pursue these goals. So James does not condemn wise business planning, but rather planning that leaves out God. He does not condemn business planning, but condemns planning that leaves out God. People like John MacArthur calls these kind of people practical atheists, living their lives and making their plans as if God is not on the playing field or doesn't even exist. Friends, when we live this way, we must understand that it does not line up with genuine saving faith. It does not line up with genuine saving faith. Are you a practical atheist by what you say, being in accordance with God's word, but how you live not? Friends, here I'd like to give a brief, just a brief warning. Anytime you pursue riches for the sake of getting wealthy, it is always a slippery slope towards self-confidence, towards sinful self-confidence. Thomas Manton said it this way, carnal men charm their souls with whispers of vanity and feed themselves with pleasant anticipation of that carnal delight which they look for. Carnal affections are often accompanied by carnal confidence. Friends, ask yourself, when you want something like riches, wealth, you want more money, you want more security, is your anticipation founded in faith or lust? When you finally get what you want, where does the assurance of your contentment rest? In the promises of God or in your welfare? Friends, we will always be most confident. We will always be most confident in what we believe to be the most secure. What do you place your confidence in? What do you deem to be most trustworthy? Do you find more Refuge in your money than in God? Friends, we must be careful because this subtle self-confidence that will decay your trust in God will also not deliver the promises of delight that it says it will. Neglecting to entrust our hopes and our plans to God and his counsel is paramount. Friends, it's paramount 
to arrogance and unbelief. It is a shame that we often worry more about financial security than eternal security. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Beloved, the sin of verse 13 is not primarily that we desire to be God, although there is an inflated arrogance and ego present, but beyond that, verse 13 highlights the willful, deliberate neglect of God in our plans. The willful, deliberate neglect of God in our plans. John Calvin even says it this way, referring to verse 16, their minds were inebriated with vanity so as to disregard God. Now the word for boast in verse 16 can also be translated and is translated in other places, glory and rejoice. Friends, what does it look like to boast, to glory, to rejoice in our arrogance? It might look like getting the raise you desired, but instead of asking, how can I give more, you ask, how can I get more? It might look like charging a certain amount of money for the product you're selling, but because you know you could get even, good, good, could get more, even though you don't need more, and you know that the product isn't worth more, you still charge more. Friends, we could be more deliberate in our neglect of God than we realize. We could be a practical atheist, like MacArthur says. We might say, like with our mouths, I account for God's sovereignty in the plans that I, that I make. Friends, the last time you made plans and those plans did not go as planned, how did you respond? Friends, boasting on our arrogance could look like us saying, God knows my plans. He knows I'm taking him into account. I don't have to tell others that because they know I'm taking God into account too. Friends, maybe they don't. As Christians, we need to be more vocal about God's sovereignty than we think we do? Do we, with our mouths, give room for God's sovereignty while at the same time being confident that you can determine what tomorrow brings? Friends, if we're all honest with ourselves, admitting it or without admitting it, there are places in situations in our lives where we will still say, God, this is my life. Don't touch that part of my life. I determined what I did yesterday and what is happening today is, is going according to plan. I set the trajectory for my life. I already have tomorrow planned. Don't mess with it. I'm the captain of this ship. Friends, we all know there are those places in our lives, that closet, you know, when someone walks into your house and you say, you can come into my living room, come into my kitchen, but that closet right there, don't go in there. It might fall on you. It's just... Friends, we have those in our lives. We have those closets that we don't want to open. And we say, you can come into my living room, you can see my kitchen, you can see my dishes, you can cook on my stove, you can play with my kids in my living room, but 
Don't open that door. And friends, that's often what we say to God. Are there places in your life that you are not allowing God sovereign control over? Because here's the thing, friends. Whether you're letting the Lord be Lord or not, he is still Lord. Period. He is still Lord. So whether you open the door or not, he's still Lord of whatever's in the door. Friends, are you not even considering God at all? What about your children, your health, your tomorrow? Friends, tomorrow, think about this. Tomorrow doesn't even exist yet. Tomorrow does not even exist. Do you live as if it does? And this is when James seeks to disprove our false confidence. Point two, the brevity of life. The brevity of life. Verse 14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And then he says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Friends, James is just trying to draw attention to the reality. The reality is that we don't know what tomorrow brings. That's the reality. We don't know, we can't know. I can't know what's going to happen in a second. And like I said, just as sure as you and I are sitting here together, I'm standing, we can all be sure that tomorrow does not yet exist. It is not in the history books. And like a wrecking ball, James bashes their self-confidence, their sinful, false confidence in Proverbs 27, 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring. James puts his finger on the real issue. We have no foresight. None. We don't know what is going to happen in one second, let alone tomorrow or in a year. James doesn't seek to diagnose their sin with the question, why did you say that? I mean, they say this, this statement that doesn't even seem to be necessarily wrong, but then he doesn't say, why did you say that? Instead, he asks, what is your life? See, James knows that what comes out of the mouth is a product of the heart. Remember what chapter 3 was about? It was about the tongue. He's already addressed the power of the tongue at length in chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. But James asked the question, what is your life, to show us that when we boast in our arrogance, we aren't considering how fragile life really is. We aren't considering it. We're not thinking about it. The reason we don't know what tomorrow will bring is because, like James says, our lives are a mist. A mist. And it's gone. Our lives are frail and temporary. Here one minute and gone the next. Friends, illness, accidental death, or even the return of Christ 
could cut short our lives just as quickly as when the sun rises and disintegrates the mist or a shift in the wind direction blows away smoke. It's gone. Psalm 39, verse 4 through 6 says this, O Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Or John Piper says this. Behind the words of verse 13, there is an operating belief that our future is knowable, durable, and controllable. James says that all three of those beliefs are false. Tomorrow is unknown. Life is a vapor. And you don't have decisive control over anything. Friends, there are three things this passage gives us that we can know about the future. Here it is. Life will appear. It will last for a short amount of time. And it will perish. Three things. But beloved, in our arrogance we will believe something false about our life. Namely, that it is ours to do what we wish. God is sovereign over life and death. Our life is a mist, a smoke, according to verse 14. Our life is like a vapor. Here one second and gone the next, and we will live until tomorrow only if the Lord wills. Friends, what a humbling reminder not one of us is guaranteed that we will be alive tonight to lay our head on our pillow. Not one of us. Such a humbling reminder. Brothers and sisters, think about the fact that everything you have, everything you have, the shirt on my back, the shoes on my feet is not mine. Nothing we have is ours. Everything, from your children to your car, God has given us a stewardship to care for what he has given us, but we don't own. We don't own anything. Friends, this flies in the face of any statement that starts with, I deserve. I deserve this. No, 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 no. We don't deserve anything. Everything you have, God has provided for you. All those qualities that describe us, that we appear for a little while and then we vanish, Friends, those qualities should remind us of how God is unlike us. God has never appeared anywhere because he is eternally omnipresent. God has never been around for a short amount of time because he's everlasting. God will never perish because he created existence itself. Speaking of Christ, Paul says all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Friends, like a plant, God waters the earth. God provides food for all his creatures. He clothes the mountains in snow and the fields with grass. He makes the sheep to graze in the pastures that he caused to flourish by his gracious providence. He is the father of the fatherless and protector of the widow. He settles orphans in a home and leads prisoners to prosperity. 
Daily, God bears us up. He makes springs gush forth in the valleys, flowing between the hills, giving drink to every beast of the field, and every wild animal quenches their thirst. God makes birds to dwell in the trees and sing in the branches. God satisfies the earth with his loving care. He created the sea, great and wide, which teems with living creatures innumerable. Psalm 104, 27 says, These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Beloved, every time you hear the oceans roar, it is the crescendo of God's glory. Every time you hear the leaves rustle, it is the symphony of creation crying out, You are holy. Every time you see the majesty of the mountains, their majesty only speaks volumes of God's supreme reigning power. And whenever you hear a newborn baby cry, it is the echo of creation saying, you are good. We serve a God who is providential over all. Think about the evidence of God's providence in your birth, in your upbringing, in your conversion, in your employment, in your family affairs, and in your sanctification, and your preservation from evil. Friends, the very fact that you're in this building this morning is a testament of God's gracious providence. Which leads us to our third point. Providence-shaped humility. Verse 15 says this. On the heels of, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He says, instead... You ought to say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, friends, this isn't a statement of flippant fatalism. It's a statement of providence. Notice how James doesn't even entertain the question that we want to all ask. We all want to ask, what is your will? What is your will, God? I want to know what tomorrow is bringing. I want to know what's going to happen in a year. He doesn't even create a category for that way of thinking. He doesn't even entertain it. He doesn't ask it. He simply says, if, if the Lord wills. Friends, this is a common phrase used by Jesus and the apostles. So in your own time, you can actually look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Matthew 6:10, Matthew 26:42, Acts verse 8 to, or chapter 18 verse 21, Acts 21 verse 14, Romans 1 verse 10, Romans 15:32 and 1 Peter 3:17. All these they, they communicate this idea of not doing something unless the Lord wills. Now while this is the case that Jesus and the apostles spoke like this, does that diminish the fact that we would 
still like to know what God's will is? Well, while faith, friends, while faith seeks to understand, it does not live by understanding the providential and mysterious ways of God. To have faith doesn't mean you need to know that. You don't need to know what God's will is, what his mysterious providential will is. Friends, the confidence of the believer is born out of the conviction that God is utterly trustworthy in character and in promise. And God's trustworthiness generates deep humility. A Christian's relationship to providence becomes even more clear when we consider prayer. According to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, God knows what we need before we ask him. He is our father. We depend on him for our bread. We ask forgiveness when we fail. We petition him for the will and strength to do what he wants us to do and avoid what he wants us to avoid. The statement, if the Lord wills, doesn't have any magical power in and of itself. There's no power to it at all. But James wants us to adopt the attitude expressed by the words as a fixed perspective from which to view all of life. This perspective should add an element of contingency to our planning. If the Lord allows this to happen. If the Lord allows this to happen. But it should also force us to evaluate our planning from a biblical perspective. So rather than saying, if the Lord wills, I will do this, we can even say, if this kind of plan is in accordance with the Lord's expressed will in Scripture. Did you know that this is God's will? It's for us to read. It's for us to know. And so we can make our plans contingent on whether or not it is in accordance with God's will. Right here. The reality is that our lives exist on that if. Our lives sit right on the if. Right there. If the Lord wills. That's where we live. Right there. And as Christians, we are called to live in the tension. We are called to live in the tension of that if. Friends, while the world cries out, get more security. So we shuffle around our whole lives seeking the the kind of security that we believe we need. While the world says get more security, God says get more dependency. Get more dependency. Psalm 57 is, is written by David. And it was written during a time when Saul was pursuing him. If you'd like to read more about the story behind Psalm 57, it's in verse 1 Samuel 22 and also 1 Samuel 24. Those are both occasions where David was in a cave running from Saul. And as you read the psalm, you find that David was, a, was in a desperate situation. He was, he was in a desperate situation because he knew that his impending death could be anywhere right around the corner. And this time was so desperate that John Flavel, the Puritan, wrote about this psalm. David was between the jaws of death. 
Listen to David's words. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He continues in Psalm 57, 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. But then listen to how he responds in the following verses. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Friends, David's life literally existed on the edge of a knife. And yet he was sitting in a cave while being chased by Saul, writing the words, I will sing praises to you among the nations. Brothers, brothers and sisters, James is teaching us this important lesson. You can plan, you can strategize, you can even say, I'm going to the grocery store. But if there is no room in your minds for bold trust in God's sovereignty, then our Christianity is a sham. Beloved, you might feel today, right now, whether your body's aching, whether there's a tragedy going on in your life, or there's someone actually out to get you, you might feel like you're in the jaws of death this morning. Friends, I would urge you, I would, I would encourage you, don't let your situation drive you to despair. But humble dependence on God. Our gracious God cares for you. He loves you deeply. Have you been caught in the way the world would inform you to think rather than trusting that God knows what is best? And he will also care for our every need. Notice too what James says after. He says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Friends, when we live lives that are shaped by knowing that God truly is providential over all that we have, in our very existence, we must respond in the way James said. I'm going to keep on living, and I'm going to do it obediently. I'm going to keep on living, and I'm going to do it obediently. Humble people who understand God's providence, live with praise on their lips.
It's been decided by God that the rebellion of kings and beasts against his rule shall terminate, that the nations will be recipients of healing, justice, and mercy, that the decisive proof of his providence shall be the reappearance of Jesus Christ and the transformation of the world order, that God has determined all this by uh, does not eliminate the problems and tragedies of our story. In fact, it might intensify them. But beloved, it does mean that God's providence ultimately finds its appropriate response in our praise to him. God's providence ultimately finds its appropriate response in our praise to him. Friends, just like Blake has mentioned throughout the the sermons on, on Ruth, he said several times, and you may have caught on to it, behind a frowning providence hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. When we have lives that are chiseled and hammered smooth on the anvil of providence, whether we receive God's frowning providence or his smiling providence, we will understand that God is worthy to be praised and we praise him. Finding that this, praising God, is the best medicine. When we understand that we don't have what we don't have, we will never deserve. What we do have, we don't have arms long enough nor strong enough to keep. And when we know the promise of eternal life with God, gazing at his face forever, eternally gathered with the saints around God's throne, hearing the myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands all raising their voices in unison to the praise and glory of the almighty king who is enthroned among the cherubim, whose arm does not grow weary, whose heart does not grow faint, whose mind does not grow dull, whose feet do not get sore, whose back does not bend with age, whose body cannot grow sick with illness, and whose hands are as strong now as they were gentle an age ago. We must know him as he is, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. He is everlasting, never-ending, ever-present, ever-powerful, ever-wise, ever-creating, ever-healing, all-sufficient, Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, Shepherd of his people, Giver of Righteousness, who had a plan from ages past and who has a plan today for ages to come, and none of his plans can be thwarted. He is the I Am, and out of the eternal, abundant name of I Am flows the statement, I will provide for you. Brothers and sisters, God provides all our needs. God is good. If you gaze at God's providence and are humbled by it, we should be thankful for the time that we've been given and live lives of urgent, urgent obedience. If we live humbly, we must become gripped with the ever-present truth that every moment we have is a gift from God. And we must live in obedience as a result. That is the theme James has talked about throughout the duration of this book. Faith without works is dead. Religion that expresses itself in word and not deed is a worthless religion. According to James 1, 26-27. Beloved, does knowing that God provides for your every need 
lead you to praise and obedience? Kids, students, do you know how much your parents provide for you? Do you thank God for your parents because through your parents, God is providing for your needs? Adults, if it weren't for your employer, you would not bring home a paycheck. Even if the employer is not a believer, the Lord is using them to provide for your needs. Maybe you own your own business. Friends, if you don't have customers that needed the product you sell or the work you do, then you'd be out of a job. God is providing for you through people who need your expertise. What should this lead us to do? Friends, we should be extremely thankful for the skills that God has given us because God is using that to provide for your needs. Lives that are shaped by providence are lives of gratitude. Worship is revelation and response. God reveals and we respond. But remember, Response without revelation is idolatry, and revelation without response is hypocrisy. Because we know how good and glorious God is, this knowledge should drive us to obey God with urgency. But friends, do we know it's urgent? Do we? Do we often think, tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. Which leads to the last point, the poison of presumption. Verse 17 says this, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now when we read this passage, it's easy to think that he's only addressing what we would call the sin of omission. Which means not doing something that God has commanded us to do. And that's sin. Now, while I do believe this passage does have that in mind, I would also say that's not the only thing going on. The implication is that they also did what they shouldn't do. Sins of omission lead to sins of commission. So more than talking about the sin of omission and the sin of commission, and the sin of commission is, it means to do something that the Lord has positively commanded not to do. So positively do something. James is talking about the sin of presumption. Presumption. And friends, if you go back, if you go back to verse 13, he points this out by helping us see that the real problem with verse 13 and verse 16 is that they were presuming. They were presuming upon God's grace. Friends, anytime we don't take into account God's providence in our planning, we are presuming on his grace. But what exactly is the sin of presumption? Well, Mark Jones says it this way. He says the basic idea is simple. Presumption is a knowing willingness to disobey God. What does the text say? Whoever knows the right thing and fails to do it. Mark Jones continues, he says, For the Christian, this includes presuming upon the grace of God, so that in the sin there is also the expectation 
of future mercy for the sin willingly committed. A Christian who sins presumptuously commits a willing provocation against God and expects a free return of mercy in exchange. Few sins are worse in the Christian life than presuming upon the grace of God. Friends, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, Romans 2 says that you are either presuming upon God's grace or you are repenting of your sin. Friends, do you live a life that is presuming upon God's kindness for you? Or are you repenting of your sin? Friends, we would never say in this church that we are a a church full of holy people. We are really messed up. We're Christians, but Christian doesn't mean that we're flawless. Christian means that we repent. Christian means that we repent of our sin. And when we believe that we are presuming upon God's kindness, we repent. So friends, if you're, not a, if you're not a Christian, I would challenge you to think about that. Are you presuming on his kindness? Anytime we know what God commands and willingly or willfully ignore or outright rebel against what God says, not doing what he commands, it comes from the arrogance of presumption. Presumption says, God will forgive me later, so I'm going to sin now. God will forgive me later, so I'm going to sin now. Presumption says, I will sin all the more so that grace may abound. Friends, think about this. A Christian spends much time in the Word and in corporate prayer, corporate worship, being fed by teachers of the Word. Christians receive truth from God. They move from immaturity to maturity in their knowledge of the Lord, and they experience God's power and grace. Then to willfully sin in presumption not only tramples these heavenly gifts, but also despises the gracious Lord who gave them. It is to know what God commands and then intentionally sin against God while thinking that God will forgive later. Because that's what God does, right? He forgives. He's a forgiving God. Beloved, what are we saying about God's attributes when we sin in this way? Presumptuous sins sever his love, his mercy, and his grace away from his other attributes such as knowledge, justice, power, and holiness. We want the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, without the justice or the power or the holiness of God. We make God a a God in our own image. A presumptuous person begins to create God, a God that is not real. And this idolatry will begin to harden our hearts. Friends, this is the real danger of, of presumption, hardening our hearts against God. Because we have a greater knowledge as Christians, and even because of the Holy Spirit God has given us, greater power that he has given us to resist sin. Our Lord may punish our sins of presumption in this life with a greater strictness than he seems to inflict upon the ungodly. Do you ever find yourself ignoring 
what God commands because it just seems inconvenient. Maybe you know the Lord would disapprove of of you looking at or hearing something that you know is outright against what God commands. Just outright against it. It would not please the Lord's ears, for he hears it too. Maybe it's a tolerating a sin in your family that you just keep ignoring. And you just keep saying, it's okay. We just came off all the holidays. Maybe it's a sin that's been running rampant in your family and you just never address it. And instead of obeying, you simply say, what's the harm? It'll be fine. Friends, we need to remember that what James taught us in, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 10, remember what James taught us. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. God doesn't just disapprove of our sin. Friends, he hates our sin. Friends, maybe you're someone who struggles with presumptuous, what I'm going to call presumptuous paralysis. You can't do anything the Lord commands you to do unless you have some kind of inner moving. Or you have to, you get a word from somewhere and you say, you know, you see a sign and you go, ah, that's it. Now I can obey God. You say, oh, now I, now I can do something for the Lord because I heard a word from God. Friends, this is presumption as well. It's presumption. When we expect or even at times demand that God gives us some word that he has never promised to give us, we are presuming upon his grace by expecting something he never promised. When God gives an inch of grace, what do we do? We take a yard. God gives an inch of grace and we say, oh, I want more of that. And God says, this is all you need. When God gives that inch, friends, ask yourself, when God gives that inch, am I expecting the yard? Thomas Manton noted this about presumptuous sin. Friends, listen to this. He says, every day they sin away their tenderness. Every day they sin away their tenderness. Men grow willful by frequent sinning. And their hearts become as hard as the highway by frequent treading upon it. Friends, presumption hardens our hearts to God's grace. If God has granted you repentance now, friends, if you are sensing repentance now, do not repent later. Because God may not grant you repentance later. I'll deal with it later is not repentance. Friends, so dangerous is this sin of presumption on God's grace that David prays in Psalm 19, 13. Keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. What's the danger that David's drawing out? He's saying that presumptuous sins can have dominion over us. They can dominate our thinking. They can cause us to think things about God that are not true. They can cause us to go down the trail of hardening our hearts lacking tenderness, and God says, come back. And every time we keep going further, we say, I'll repent later. I'll repent later. And friends, it is, on, it is the road to apostasy. 
Apostasy being walking away from the faith. Friends, the sin of presumption is deceitful and dangerous. And did you know one of the reasons that we gather each Lord's Day is so that our hearts are not hardened towards gra- or by God's, uh, toward God's grace by the sin of presumption? Did you know that? Hebrews 10, verse 24 through 27 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, for if you keep, if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, friends, listen. It is true that once the Lord saves you, the Lord will never let you go. He will keep you eternally secure. But we often forget the words of Paul in Romans 2.7. He says, God will render every to each one according to his works to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Friends, remember what James said. Remember what James said that was so pivotal in chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. It's dead faith. If you're a Christian and you do not persevere in repentance, in love, in good deeds, in growing in love for what God loves and hating what God hates, then you should probably be concerned about your salvation. Works are not necessary for salvation. They're not necessary to save you. But if works do not follow faith, then salvation may have never taken place. Friends, as faithful Christians, we should desire to have our eyes on providence. Remember all those things that I mentioned earlier all God's attributes, all the miraculous, beautiful ways that God provides for his people. Friends, any time we presume upon God's grace, we are saying, God, I don't care. I don't care that you've provided for all my needs. I don't care that you've given me the shoes that I walk in. I don't care that you've given me the shirt that's on my back. Friends, it's a blasphemy to God's name. Now, friends, That does not mean that if you are repentant now, because if you know some sin that you know that you've been presuming upon God, repent. Repent of your sins. God will bring you back. God is never going to be disposed, predisposed towards wrath, but grace. If you desire to repent now, seek His grace. Call upon him. Call upon his name and say, God, I repent of my presumption. I know that I've been smearing your face in the mud, but God, I, I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sin of presumption. But friends, remember this. Don't make amends for your course of sin by excusing it with good deeds. It is easy to soften the guilt of our conscience with good deeds. 
Don't overperform in one area because you feel guilty in another. Repent of your sin. Seek God's forgiveness today because you may not be granted repentance tomorrow. Beloved, remember also what the text says. If the Lord wills, we will live and we will do. Resolve, friends, resolve to obey God. Resolve to live in obedience to his revealed will and in contentment to his mysterious will. Trust his goodness. Flee the temptation to presume upon God's grace. Friends, it's so easy to let our arrogance presume upon God's grace by failing to consider the providence of God in all our dealings and decisions. And because of this evil, friends, we cannot humbly obey God's commands. Our Heavenly Father gave us His beloved Son. What does Ephesians 1 say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him. Friends, God desires your holiness, not your happiness primarily. But when you seek his glory, seek his face, he will make you happy in him. Repent of our sins. We must repent of our sins and understand that God paid the ultimate cost. He sent his beloved son so that we might become his beloved. Listen to this prayer from Robert Hawker. He says, You, Lord, are too rich to need anything from your creatures. And you have yourself already bought the most costly things with a price no less dear than your own precious blood. So my wise, gracious, kind, and compassionate Lord, I pray for grace to accept your counsel and to buy from you gold tried in fire, the white clothes of your righteousness and the anointing of your blessed spirit. Without money and without price, I need them all. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you've given us your revealed will. We thank you that even though we do presume upon your grace, we do still presume upon your kindness, we expect you to extend grace to us even though we know that you've already provided for all our needs. Lord, we ask, we beg your forgiveness. We ask that we would come to you daily confessing our sins, understanding that we have made an offense against the Almighty and that we need to submit our hearts and our wills to you. Lord, we thank you that you are predisposed towards grace. We thank you that you do not desire to lash out upon your beloved, but you desire to save us. You desire to extend your grace and your forgiveness to us. Lord, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you're glorious. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you are providential. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.